Thanks, brother. Pardon me. Good morning, everyone. I want to invite you now, if you would, to take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, that's not a problem. We have plenty of extras, and we would love to give you a Bible. So just raise your hand. If you don't know your way around the Bible yet, that's fine. We'll help you. There's a table of contents or ask somebody around you. But we're reading through the Gospel of Mark. Hopefully you will find it very personal and challenging and practical. I want to mention a couple things coming up. First of all, if you're interested in becoming a member, the new members class begins next Sunday night, and it will be held in Bob and Janet Travis's home, the lead pastor's home. Who wouldn't want to be in the lead pastor's home? You know, go through the cabinets, do they have any alcohol? I mean, think of all that you could learn about Bob and Janet. So that's not a good reason to become members, but it is going to be in their home, and if you are ready to commit yourself and go through the membership class, we would love to have you. Also, two other things. I want you to note that on November 9th, be sure to keep that date, November 9th, it's so important. Here's why. Everybody's wanting to learn how to share their faith. So please, if you're a Christian and you go, I just witnessed by my life, that doesn't work in the Bible. So oftentimes people will say, well, I don't witness because I don't have that gift. There is a gift of evangelism. But all of us can witness and share our faith. There's also a gift of giving. Imagine someone says, oh, I don't give to church. I don't have that gift, right? We still give. And so what we want to do is not make you feel guilty. We want to help you learn how to witness to people. So you'll notice that we're having a seminar called Evangelism for Non-Evangelists. We're not going to train you to stand up at the train station and go, sinners, repent. We're going to train you how to just have conversations with the people around you. Most people that come to Christ is through friends or family members. It's a relationship. And so we're bringing in an internationally uh, renowned speaker, Randy Newman, and he's going to do two sessions. One is evangelism for non-evangelists, and the second one is bringing the gospel home, witnessing to family members and people that are close to you. It'll be outstanding, and I, I'm sure you will benefit. So be sure to mark that down. It's only 832 uh, noon on the 9th. And then also, next, or two Sundays from now on the 20th, Dr. Matt Mikalak, who's the head of our youth ministry, it's actually Jeremy's father, he has three sons who are all youth pastors, but he is a very gifted trainer of youth workers and parents. So he is going to be speaking at our crosstalk at 915 on the subject of passing on the most precious thing to our precious ones. He's going to speak on this, and I've heard him speak on this. It's outstanding. Learning how parenting, youth culture, and technology has changed how we can transfer our values to the next generation. So really want to encourage you to, to come to that if you're uh, interested in learning about raising kids, particularly your teenagers. So pray on that. And now this morning, we're going to start in Mark chapter 11. If you were here last week, we're in the section of the gospel where on the last week of Jesus' life, the most important week, it's called Passion Week. We talked about how on Palm Sunday, Jesus came into the temple to basically not clear the temple, not to renew the temple, but to tell people that the temple's temporary, that as of his coming and his death on the cross, we're not going to use the temple anymore. He's the temple. He's going to be the way to God through his death and resurrection. But what Mark has chosen to record in the next two chapters, the end of chapter 11 and through chapter 12, 
is a series of confrontations between Jesus and the leadership of the Jews. In fact, Mark sets it up almost like one wave after another. They come, they try to attack Jesus, he picks them off, and then the next group comes. In fact, look with me just to kind of see this. In 1127, it says, They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, scribes, and elders came to him. This was a sampling from the three top leadership tiers, the CEO, the president, and so forth. And they began questioning him, saying, by what authority are you doing these things? This begins to unfold a series of people that are just getting in Jesus' grill and trying to argue with him. Go down to chapter 12 and verse 13. It says, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement, right? Sounds like what we see in politics today. If you want to try to get a guy, let's set him up to say something bad. Then go down to chapter 12, verse 18. And some Sadducees, this was another group of leaders who say there's no resurrection, they came to him and began questioning him. Jesus disposes of them. And then in verse 28, it says, and one of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that they answered him well. He asked him. So one by one, Mark reminds us that Jesus had these people who were trying to, to squelch him, to trap him. But in case you want a spoiler alert, how does it end? Look at chapter 12, verse 34. The last guy wasn't too far off. So Jesus saw he had answered intelligently. He said, hey, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. In other words, they got to a point where they're like, this ain't working. I'm not doing this anymore. So they all kind of just left. But Mark records this for us because there's some really powerful things that we can learn from this about Jesus as we clarify who he is, and then about discipleship, whether or not I want to be his follower. So let's go back to 1127. We'll start there. We'll see this first confrontation actually has to do with the heart and soul of who Jesus is, his authority. Look at verse 27 again. It says, They came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and elders came to him and began saying to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, this is a really important question in Mark. This word authority is used ten times. And it shows up from the beginning of the book. Jesus starts casting out demons and, and teaching with power. And, and, and the people go, wow, where'd this guy get this authority? And throughout the book, we see this. The disciples, when he calms the storm, they go, where does he get this authority? Who is this guy? But for the first time, they're asking Jesus, what's the source of your authority? Now, this might seem weird, but we do this. We do this, don't we? We say to somebody, yo, what right do you have? To say that, to, you're talking to me? I'm from Philly, right? I've seen, it's happened here. We put some, years ago, I've been here 13, 14 years, years ago we put some ropes across in the back because we were reserving some seats. Let's just say an older person, doesn't matter who, they're not here anymore. They came and they just removed the rope. And they just sat down. One of our ushers came to them and said, excuse me, we have them roped off. And this person said, who are you, the king of chairs? Who do you think you are? Like, what right do you have to tell? I'll sit wherever I want, right? 
which affectionately we began to call that guy the king of chairs, right? Hey, king of chairs. We had someone park in the handicap. Hey, sorry, you, you can't park there if you're not handicapped. Sue me, right? So we, we see this. In fact, I had this happen in person. I was in, a, in a, a breakfast diner where I would frequent at times. And when I went up to pay, there was a man in front of me, and he was using the most foul language. It was offensive. I mean, he was just vulgar. And so this, the waitress who's cashing it out, I'm thinking, this is, this is, I said, half joking, but I, I got to the side of him. I said, excuse me, sir, this is a non-cursing establishment, right? And I'm expecting a little help from, from the waitress. She goes, no, no, it's fine, it's fine. So after he left, I said to the, to the girl, I knew her, right? I've been there. I said, I said, you had a chance to help me out. You threw me, you, what, what's going on? She goes, do you know who that was? I said, no. She goes, he owns this building. <laughs> it's my building, and I can do whatever I want, right? Thankfully, he didn't say, you talking to me? But, but they're asking Jesus, yeah, we've been watching you now for three and a half years. You're doing some crazy stuff, man. Like, like you come in here, and you're turning money tables over, and you're telling us don't do this, and beware of the leadership. Who do you think you are? Where do you get this authority, this, this sovereign power? What do you think? You're the king? Now, we know because we're reading Mark, we're going, yeah, as a matter of fact, he is. He's the son of God. He has authority over the whole world and the universe. But yet, in this confrontation, they want to know, where do you get this authority? So Jesus, like Plato, he's going to give them a question. He would have been good on Jeopardy. Jesus said to them in verse 29, I will ask you one question. And you answer me, and then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. You're like, what? Why is he doing that? Well, three and a half years prior to this, something rocked the whole nation. A little hairy guy named John the Baptist came out of the, out of the, the desert Never did a single miracle, but called the entire nation to their knees and said, you're sinning, and the Messiah's in your midst, and you better repent. And if you repent, you better get baptized to show that you're humbly submitting to God. And the entire region went out to him. But you know who didn't go out to him? The leadership. The leaders, the Bible says, they rejected the purpose of God. They're like, that hairy monkey who... Stupid guy who eats and locusts and wild honey. I'm not listening to him, right? So Jesus says, so let me ask you guys a question. So was he from God or wasn't he? Was it from heaven? And obviously in their mind, the answer is no, he wasn't from God, right? So, so then he was a moron, right? He was, he was just from man. He was just doing this on his own just as a, a, a way to get praise from man. So he, he hangs them out to dry, like they, they're stuck here. So look what it says. They began reasoning with one another. Look at verse 31. So what they did is they said, can, they're on Shark Tank, can, can we just talk in private, right? So they come and they, they phone a friend and they're like, hey, listen, we're stuck here. If we say it's from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? If we say, no, yeah, John was from God, then we're toast because he's going to say, then why didn't you repent and get baptized? But if we say it's not from God, man, we're going to go down in the polls. Look what it says. If we say it was from men, they were afraid of the multitude. 
for all considered John to have been a prophet indeed. In other words, God sent him. Now, you know what's striking is that Jesus, Jesus didn't say to them, why didn't you get baptized by him? He said, why didn't you believe him? Right? What I want you to think about is there is a very close connection between believing and doing something about it. If you say that you believe Christ as your Lord and Savior, to believe in him is to then demonstrate that by the way you live, right? So if someone says, yeah, I believe in Christ as my Lord and Savior, but I'm not getting baptized, I go, but, well, I thought you said you believe in him. To be a believer is to be a forgiven follower. And so Jesus is like, so why didn't you follow God and listen to his word and trust and obey? So verse 33, it's interesting because they said, we don't know. And Jesus said, well, then I'm not telling you where I got my authority. And so we're sort of like, oh, no, the the authority of Jesus is hidden. And, And I go, actually, it's not hidden. It's clarified. You're like, no, it's not because he didn't answer. Yeah, it is. Because Jesus didn't pick John the Baptist randomly, like, oh, let me just think of some way to trick them, and then, ha-ha, got you, right? Think about what happened with Jesus and John the Baptist. Mark chapter 1 says, Jesus was baptized by John, and suddenly a voice from heaven said, this is my son. Right? So in a in, in appealing to John the Baptist, Jesus is telling you, I'll tell you where I got my authority. From God, because I'm the son of God. See, Jesus never did any miracles until he was baptized. When the spirit of God came upon him and the father testified, this is my son, listen to him. He has authority to forgive sins. He has authority and you must follow him. So in essence, Jesus did. Answer the question, where are you getting your authority? But it was mysteriously clarified. And that causes you and me to go, wait a minute. So if he's who he says he is, wait a minute. Do I have the option of just going, I don't bother him. and He doesn't bother me. So let's take that, that a step further. If Jesus has authority, then failure to live my life submitted to Jesus is going to be magnified in the next parable. Jesus is like, wait, before you leave, I want to tell you a story. We all love a story, but don't miss this. He's just talked about his authority when he starts a story. Verse 1 of 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. So he takes a very common event. Back then, and if you've ever been to Israel, there's, there's lots of horticulture and lots of vineyards. It's Napa Valley, right? And there's money to be made in the wine industry. And it was pretty straightforward ways to do that. And so everyone was familiar with this. Jesus says, hey, let me tell you a story. A man planted a vineyard. People do that all the time. He put a wall around it. People did that all the time. You don't want, like, the deer eating all of your produce, right? We, you put fences up. What, I know there aren't deer eating the grapes. But anyway, he put a wall around it. He dug a vat under the wine press. Like, this was not... A Mo and Larry's just foot stomp and gathered up like he had state of the art for that time. You know, this was going to be a money-making profit. And then he built a tower, right? Because just as today, you better have watchmen or somebody's going to be stealing from you. And then 
He rented it out to vine growers. Okay, okay. And then he went on a journey. Wait a minute. He's an absentee landlord. This was a very common thing back then. They get this. There were a lot of absentee landlords who simply said, I'm not even living around here, but that's my, that's my wine, that's my vineyard, and I just want the proceeds. We have an agreement. You work for me, you pay the rent, right? You make some money, I make some money. Okay, fine. Well, how do you get paid? You go and you collect. Okay, Jesus. It says, at the harvest time, verse 2, he sent a slave to the vineyard in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine grower. So one day the slave shows up. He goes, hey, I'm here to represent, um, we'll say it's Stan Goldman, and um, he uh, says that you owe him this much money. Okay. Verse 3, they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Wait, can't do that. That's illegal. Now, Mr. Goldman was very patient. Look at verse 4. And again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head. So they just <laughs> conked him on the head with a stone or beat him with a stick. The guy's got a big weld on his head. But if that wasn't enough, it says they treated him shamefully. So every culture has ways of embarrassing people, right? Shaming them in front of others. One way to do that was to shave a man's beard off, you know, kind of a contemporary, I don't know, like a, giving him a public wedgie or just terribly humiliating him in front of everybody, right? Not just beating him, but humiliate him. Imagine when that guy goes back and he tells his boss, he's like, what's that bandage on your head? They beat me up. And where's your beard? They shaved it off and laughed at me. Like you could see, like if, if we're drawn into this, our emotions are like, man, somebody needs a, these guys are wicked, right? So verse 5 says, then he sent another. And that one they killed. Imagine, imagine. When, when, when the boss says, hey, I need you to go collect rent. Oh, <coughs> my trick bag just went out. Send somebody else. I mean, there's a pattern developing here. And then it says, and with many others he sent, and they beat some and killed others. And by now, if, if you at all are engaged here, if you know anything about the Bible, you're, you're going, wait a minute. This sounds like the Old Testament. This sounds like what happened in the Old Testament. Didn't God form a nation through Abraham, the Jewish people, and give them his laws and say, look, if you trust and obey me, you are going to be so blessed. But if you disobey me, you're going to be so cursed. And they began to disobey him, and so God kept sending prophets to warn them. Hey, turn back to God. Give God the glory. Serve God. And what did they do to the prophets? They beat them. They shamed them. And they killed them. You read the book of Jeremiah. They throw him into a pit. Extra biblical literature tells us that they sawed the prophet Isaiah in half. Right? So these people aren't dumb. They're going, wow, that kind of sounds like the Old Testament, how God kept coming to get his due, and they kept killing the prophets. Verse 6. He had one more to send, a beloved son. Now, again, this parable is very pointed. It wasn't just any son. It wasn't his black sheep son who he couldn't stand and hadn't talked to him for two years. This is his only beloved son. The word beloved just means dearly loved. This is the same word that's used in the Septuagint of Abraham's son Isaac. Take now your son, your only son whom you dearly love, right? Now, first of all, you're like, wow. But this guy, he's thinking, all right, 
Not that these men are dangerous. They must have some dignity. So he says, I'll send my son, verse 6. Surely they'll respect my son. Like, hey, this is the boss's kid, right? Undercover boss. Now we know this is the boss's kid. Like, dang, we, we better start paying up. But look at those vine growers. It says they said to one another, hey, this is the heir. In other words, he's the, the, the owner's son. The owner's going to die soon. He's going to leave it to his kid. Let's just, let's just out him. We take him down, and then it's just ours. We don't, have to have, we don't have to keep beating people, right? Let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now, by now, our emotions are fully engaged. Why somebody needs to go get them? So Jesus says, yeah, of course. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? If they kill his only son, what is he going to do? Well, in a, in a great understatement, he goes, he'll come and destroy the vine growers. Like, man, if I was telling that story, I would have played that out like, like a vigilante movie. He would have come and said, you made my day. And I would have described how each one of them, he beat them, you know, but he just says, he's going to destroy them, right? And then don't miss this little phrase. And he says, and he's not going to shut down the vineyard. He said, this is stupid. It says, he's going to do what? Verse 9, give the vineyard to others. Hmm. Hmm. Look what that would look like. So if the Jews and their leadership reject and kill Jesus, he's not going to shut down his program or his people. He's going to go to the Gentiles, right? Now, Jesus then says, hey, wait, I want to bring a scripture to this. You guys know this verse Psalm 118. Now remember, the Jews knew the Psalms. That was their hymn book. They sang the Psalms. We sing the same Psalm. We sing, this is the day that the Lord hath. Psalm 118 was a very popular Psalm back then. And this verse that Jesus quotes was a very popular verse. They knew this verse. It says, have you not read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone that became a very famous verse. They understood that there was something special about this verse. Now, you picture this. Stonemasons. They're not using bricks. They're using just, for lack of a better term, uncut wild stones, you know, and they're trying to find the ones that match. You're putting together a puzzle, right? But there's no box. And so they had a really good stone that would have been the perfect cornerstone, which, by the way, the cornerstone is the heart and soul, the most important stone in the entire building. And it says, the builders took a stone and said, ah, that was no good. But God said, wait a minute, this has become the cornerstone. What man rejected, God said, that's the pinnacle. And we know from later history, that's talking about Jesus. The Jews rejected him, but God said, no, I'll take him. But then, while the other gospel writers quote this verse, they don't quote the next verse, but Mark does. Now look at the next verse. This came about from the Lord... And it's marvelous in our eyes. In other words, that's, it's really cool to think about this. And what I want you to do is think about the cross of Jesus. God planned for the cross. The Bible says in, in Acts chapter 2, Jesus was delivered up to the cross by the predetermined plan of God. God wasn't going, oh, oh, what are they? oh no, they're killing my son. He purposed and planned it that Jesus would be pierced. And yet, it was entirely man's fault. Not one of those Roman soldiers can say, you programmed me, 
I, I, I was just a robot. God is so awesomely mysterious and powerful that he can create creatures and give them the free will and still accomplish his purposes, and yet it was their fault. And I want you to think about the mystery of the cross. Think about the mystery of the cross. The Bible says to the world the cross is foolishness, but to us it's the power of God. The Psalms actually say this. God can use the wrath of man to praise him. The worst thing that mankind ever did on this planet was kill Jesus. And yet that's the best thing that'll ever happen on this planet. And that's why this came about from the Lord. And it's mar- is it marvelous in your eyes? Say amen. I love the cross. I'm so grateful that Jesus hung there for me, that he shed his blood and said it's finished. And so what I want you to see here is that failure to live for Jesus in this parable is actually magnified. So his authority in the last one is clarified, but failure to live for Jesus is magnified. And and let me explain what I mean by that. Who are we in this parable? I wouldn't hit Jesus. Didn't we all nail him to the cross? Wasn't it our sins? Don't we sing, It was my sin that put him there until it was accomplished. You see, every day that I fail to surrender my life to Jesus is another slap in the face. The Bible says in the book of Romans that the entire world is hostile to God. It is unwilling to submit to God. Lest we cleanse our hands and go, well, we're just the jury sitting in judgment over those bad men that rejected Jesus. That's the entire world, right? That shows that it's the guilt of our sin that put Christ there. But don't stop there. Let that draw you to Christ and let it become marvelous in your eyes that even though my sin put him there, he allowed it because he loved me. He wasn't surprised by it. He wasn't like, hey, what are you doing? Stop it. The Bible says he loved me and he gave himself for me, which then leads Jesus to tell a third or a second story. Look at verse 12. They were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the multitude, for they understood that he had spoken this parable against them. You know what's crazy? To think that they knew exactly what he was saying and they still weren't afraid. They knew that he was claiming, I actually am God's son, and you're going to kill me. And they knew it. And instead of submitting, they're trying to figure out a way to kill him anyway, right? Doesn't that show the insanity of rebelling against God? Doesn't it show the ridiculousness of trying to think that we can argue God away and somehow our case is different and we don't have to live for him? And so it's a reminder that the same sun that softens wax hardens clay. And you're sitting here now and listening to the word of God. And each one of us has to make a choice. I have to make a choice to realize that my sin put Christ on the cross. And that Jesus does have authority over me. Or to do anything other than to surrender to him is to be in rebellion like those vine growers. But just to press home this point, Jesus says, well... Anybody else got any questions? So look at the next verse. They sent some Pharisees and Herodians to trap him in a statement. Oh, all right, that, those guys, they failed. They, they couldn't get him, but we'll get him. 
Watch this. Hey, uh, teacher. Now look what they say about him. Now, what they're about to say about him is true. Every word that they say about him is true. The irony here is that they're just using it as flattery. If they really believe this, they probably wouldn't even be trying to trap him. But look, they say, hey, teacher, Jesus, listen, we know. Now, think about this. We're supposed to become like Jesus. This is a, I love this verse. I think about this a lot. When Jesus talked to other people, this was how he's described. Jesus, you are truthful. Now, the next phrase, it says, you, dis, de, you defer to no one, which literally in, in, in Greek says, it's not a concern to you about anyone. In other words, Jesus, it, you are not worried what people think about you, whether you're talking to the king or to the lowest of low in society. You don't worry about what people think about you. You're not a man pleaser. There's not a, a, a thread in you that cares what people think. You speak the truth. You're not partial to anybody, Jesus, but you teach the way of God in truth. Let that sink in for a moment. Because at first read there, you'll be like, man, Jesus was harsh. He didn't have a filter, man. He just blasted people. Knock it off, you snakes and vipers, right? But I want you to think more deeply about that. Jesus was incredibly compassionate incredibly merciful. Each person that he dealt with, he knew their heart's condition and he answered accordingly. So with the woman at the well, he didn't say, you better repent, you viper. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. But with other people, man, he hammered them with a two by four. That is a skill that God calls us to learn. This is what the Bible calls it. Learning to speak the truth in love. Okay? And because we're sinners, finding that balance is difficult. Some of you never say anything. You see wrong stuff. You know things are wrong. You have opinions and feelings. And you should be voicing them, not keeping it all in and growing bitter. You should speak up. Others... Have no filter. You're blasting everybody. If it's on your mind and that's the way it is, you're going to let them have it. And the beaches are riddled with people who have been blown away by you. But Jesus is calling us to try to be very loving, but to be truthful. That's a virtue. That's what it means to be like Christ. That means that sometimes even when I speak to someone about Christ, I don't want to tell them what they want to hear. I tell them, as lovingly as I can, what they need to hear. That's what love does. And so while they, they flatter Jesus with this, that wasn't their, their goal to really praise him. They're setting him up. They said, so we got a question for you, teach. Bring it to us. Verse 14. Can we pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? In 6 AD, remember when it says a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world would be taxed. From then on, they had what was called a poll tax. And this tax was kind of a census tax, and the, the price was a denarius. It was a Roman silver coin. It was, it was a, a day's wage. So, boy, I'd love it if in our culture all we had to do was pay one day's wage for a year of taxes. That'd be great. I'd, you know, I'd sign up for that, wouldn't you? But this particular denarius had the image of Tiberius Caesar on it. 
and it said on it, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So think of the play here. Jesus goes, hey, you want to know what you should pay a poll tax? Go bring me one of those denarius. This is really interesting. Teacher, bring, should we pay? Jesus says, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? They're speaking the truth, but in love. He says, bring me one of those Daenerys coins to look at. And they brought him one. And he holds it up and he says, hey, whose likeness is on this? Whose inscription? What do you see there? They're like Caesar. And they know what it says. Caesar's son of the divine, son of God, right? He goes, yeah, exactly. His image is on it. So since his image is on it, it belongs to him. So give it to him. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. But before he finishes, he goes, oh, by the way. And then he says, render to God what is God's. I'm surprised he didn't pick up a human and say, see this guy right here? Whose image is on him? Picture Jesus picking you up right now and saying, whose image is on you? Because we are created in the image of God. And you know what that means? That means that God has rightful ownership of every person on this earth. And so what we see in this parable is that our obligation to live for Jesus by this little coin is verified. Let me help you in answering this question. Frequently when you're challenging people to come to Christ and you're pointing out sin, they will say this, especially when it comes to sexual sin, hey, as long as I'm not hurting anybody, I could do whatever I want. Because you've probably fallen into this. You've told someone, hey, the Bible says it's a sin to have sex before you're married, right? I didn't make up the rules. The Bible says it's a sin to commit adultery. And the Bible says it's a sin to practice homosexual behavior. And you've come back and, and you've, you've tried to say, yeah, well, if that's so, I want to be a murderer. I could do whatever I want. And then the unbeliever says, oh, no, no, because you're hurting someone. So it's a sin if you hurt someone. But if I want to do what I want with my body and I'm not hurting anyone, I could do whatever I want. And C.S. Lewis came up with a brilliant illustration which really reflects this. Hey, you're made in the image of God. He says humans tend to think that we all are sailing along in a ship and you can do whatever you want with your little boat as long as you don't ram into others. So yeah, if you kill somebody, then that's a sin because you're messing with somebody else's boat. But as long as, and this is what unbelievers say, as long as I'm not hurting anybody, I could do whatever I want. And, and if you took the analogy, with my boat. And Lewis says, yeah, but what you're failing to remember is, it's not your boat. Your life is not your boat. You were created by it, and God allowed you to be the skipper, but your life is not your boat. So whether or not you're hurting anyone else is not the issue. The issue is we were created by God and therefore he has an obligation over our lives. And so when God says to us, render to God the things that are God's, what does he mean by that? You're God's, Tom. So you should submit to God so that you're giving back to God what he rightfully owns. So as we close, I want you to think through some applications here. I think the, the heart and soul of these interactions are pretty simple. We are, we're talking about clarifying Jesus. We're getting to know Jesus well. So here's what I want you to remember. Knowing Jesus well 
ought to lead to surrender to his will. Nothing less. If you don't surrender to his will, then you are rejecting knowing Jesus well. So let's talk about how this plays out. If you're already a Christian, which is a forgiven follower, we're not good people, we're forgiven sinners. That's why we welcome sinners here. In fact, you're not welcome here if you're not a sinner. So if there's anybody here that's not a sinner, you can go. Because you make us uncomfortable, right? But if you're looking for a perfect church, stay away from it because you'll ruin it when you get there. We're sinners, right? We're all broken people. Jesus calls sinners. But once we become forgiven sinners, we don't just get our hell insurance. So instead, as a Christian, I can think about these two stories. The first one is, okay, if, if God has entrusted me with a vineyard, then I'm supposed to give him some fruit. So think of your vineyard as your possessions, right? It's not your house, it's not your car, your job. It's not your, God gave you that job. Whatever money you have, whatever family members you have, your neighborhood, this is God's vineyard and he's put you there to work. And so, well, how do I, how do I give him fruit? Well, that's the essence of becoming a disciple. Once Jesus forgives us, then he's in the process of changing us, right? And so what we're learning how to do is to bear fruit for Christ. Jesus said, abide in me, and you will bear fruit. So we're learning to surrender and obey his word and trust him and confess our sins and be transformed. We're not just in a self-help group going, try harder and be nicer. We're a community of Christ-indwelt followers. And so pray, I pray daily that this church will bear fruit, that people will be saved, that lives will be changed. Christian character is fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Don't just say, hey, I'm forgiven, but I'm just an angry jerk. No, you're a forgiven person that's being changed into the image of Jesus. Well, I'm forgiven, but I just have a sex addiction. No, you're forgiven to be changed. So think of that vineyard and think, my job and everything is a chance for me to bring glory to God. But secondly, when I think about the inscription, you ready for this? We are transformed image bearers. Kids know what transformers are. Remember when McDonald's came out with little transformers? The Bible actually says this, that when you became a Christian, Colossians 3.10 says, you have been created in the image of God, and now you are being renewed into the image of Jesus. Think about this. You're under construction. Jesus is changing you. Once you submit to him and you're forgiven, he doesn't say, I love you just as you are. Now go, hey, I love you just as you are. Now I love you too much to leave you that way. And he begins to change us. He begins to say, hey, Tom, you're still being selfish here. Hey, Tom, this isn't what I want you to do with your time or your values or your money or your thought life or your body. So think of it as a positive, wonderful experience. We are in community being changed into the image of Christ. If you don't want to do that, you probably won't be comfortable here because we call out sin on purpose, because we don't want to tolerate sin. We want to speak the truth to one another and encourage each other to become like Jesus. So it's actually very exciting. That's why we want you to get involved in a small group so that you can begin to have people pray for you. But ready for this? If you recognize Jesus' authority as a son of God, you might say, even if I recognize his authority... Why should I surrender to him? Well, let, let's think about this. The way that you have lived your life, you deserve to be killed. 
based on this passage. I deserve to be killed for my sin. Are you ready for this? Instead, he willingly got killed for my sin. I am so grateful for that. He could have come to conquer us, but he came to be killed for us. Nobody made him go to that cross. He wasn't going, stop it. The Bible says he loved me and he gave himself for me. So if you haven't submitted to Christ yet, are you being stubborn or submissive? So I'm going to put this challenge out. Many of you may be here and you're still thinking about this. And you probably came here because somebody brought you, invited you, or you're a teenager, you're a young person, your parents dragged you here, and you're like, I don't know if I want to be here. But I'm going to ask those of you who have a friend or loved one or someone that you know that's coming, sometime ask them that question. Are you surrendered and trusting in Christ? And if not, could you help me to understand why not? I think that's a fair question. We're not going to beat you up and yell at you and scream at you and tell you how bad you are. But if, if you can't think of why you're not surrendering to Christ, well, this is the time to do it. Don't, don't say, I'll do it later. You might not get a later. Render to God the things that are God's. Like the coin. Every day that you don't live for Jesus, you're stealing from God. Well, what would it look like to begin to to bear fruit and surrender and be forgiven and follow God. You all saw it. You saw it this week on the news. You saw when that African-American man stood in front of that white woman who had shot and killed her brother, and you saw him on the news say, I forgive you. You saw him weep and say, can I give you a hug? And some of you, because the news never puts this stuff on there, but some of you read the transcript, and you saw that afterward the judge came down, who was a Christian, he gave a Bible to the lady who, sh- who was the murderer, who was weeping out of guilt. But, but what I want to share in, in this illustration, you won't see this on the news, is that twice that young man who forgave her said to her, if my brother, by the way, the, the, the guy that got shot was a Christian, he said, if my brother was here, the one thing he would say to you is, give your life to Christ. Give your life to Christ. That's what God's saying to you today. Give your life to Christ. Because he already gave his life for you. And the Bible says, now is the day of salvation. Many of us have already done that. Not because we're better, not because we're smarter, but because God called us and and we responded. And we're growing and we'll help you. But if you haven't responded, parents, these are the conversations we have with our kids. You don't go, you better give your life to Christ. You talk to them. Hey, have you given your, are you, are you trusting in Jesus? Are you, are you, why not? And then you can't force it on them. But may that scripture be in your mind as you go through this week. Render to God things that are God's. Namely, exhibit A, myself. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the words of Jesus. How grateful we are that you loved us. You didn't send your son to destroy us. You sent your son to die for us. And now you invite us to believe in him. You invite us to be completely forgiven because he died on the cross. 
Thank you so much, Lord, for all of us who are believers. We give you all the glory. We know it was by your grace alone that we're saved. Through faith alone, it's a gift. And we pray that we can bring forth fruit and reflect your image as your spirit changes us. But if you're here today and you want to give your life to Christ right now, do that. The best you know how, just say to Jesus, Lord, I believe what I just heard from the word of God. And today, I trust you. And I believe that you died and rose again. And I want to begin to render to God the things that are God's. I give my life to Jesus. Please forgive me. And I believe that you will begin to change me. And we ask this for God's glory, in Jesus' name, amen. If you made that decision or want to talk to somebody, feel free to ask anybody here, or I'll be here afterward if you would like to talk. Also, if you could, as you're, be sure to say hi to somebody, meet somebody. But while you're doing that, can you stack chairs in piles of seven? It's a big help. Seriously, if you could, just stack chairs while you're fellowshipping. Thank you very much.